and welcome to Postcards from Heron County, a podcast that delves into some of the heritage of Ontario's West Coast. I'm your host, Mandy Sinclair, and since returning to the area after 20 years away, I have enjoyed rediscovering the county and wanting to know more about the history of the region as I set out exploring the trails, small towns, and more. So I'm inviting you to listen in as I sit down to chat with historians and community members who have a close connection to the topic in question. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge that I am recording at Faux Pop Studios in Goderidge, which is on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral Peoples. I recognize the First Peoples' continued stewardship of the land and water, and that this territory was subject to the Dish with One Spoon wampum, under which multiple nations agreed to care for the land and resources by the Great Lakes in peace. I would also like to acknowledge and recognize the Upper Canada Treaties signed in regards to Huron County, as settlers know it, which include Treaty 29 and Treaty 45 and a half. On today's episode, I'm joined in studio with local historian David Yates to chat about prohibition years in Huron County until the late 1950s. Thank you so much for joining me here today at Faux Pop to discuss a topic that seems kind of unbelievable in this day and age, especially given the amount of new breweries, cideries, wineries that seem to be popping up in Heron County. And yet I have family members who remember the dry days or rather years, even decades of the 20th century in Heron County, given Huron and nearby Perth counties were the last to abolish prohibition, which happened in November 1959. But before we dive into prohibition and all that kind of stuff in Heron County, I just want to um, do a quick introduction. Although you're quite well known around Heron County, you're a historian, the author of three books called Out of the Woods, Out of the Blue, and That Freedom Might Survive. You have an amazing column that I love to read that's focused on local history and appears in the newspapers around here and most people listening may best know you as Mr. Yates as you taught world issues to many students including me at CHSS for several years so can you just tell listeners a bit about yourself and why you're interested in this chapter of Huron County history well thanks Mandy for that kind introduction mm-hmm. I'm interested in Huron County not just Huron County history but anybody's history any type of history and uh the prohibition years or the dry years are of particular interest because um, it was an incredibly important debate at the turn of the last century. In fact, the Scott Act or the Canada Temperance Act for about 75 years was one of the biggest debates nationwide about um, the prohibition or how much alcohol was good and the social and political uh, implications of going dry or remaining um, wet. It was it was a really an interesting time. Um, and a really interesting debate in the area and in the country and the continent um, mm-hmm. itself. Like the U.S. was very dry in the 1920s. Wow. And so let's just dig a little bit deeper into the Canada Temperance Act um, or also the Scott Act as it's known. What years was it enforced and what was allowed and what was prohibited under this rule? The Scott Act came in in the uh, late um, 19th century and What it provided for was municipalities and counties to decide whether they wanted to allow the sale and distribution of alcohol. Um, uh, So it was basically a local debate in every single town and county and municipality in in the country. And uh, municipalities, counties were allowed to opt in and out 
of the um, of, of becoming a dry or a wet meaning dry meaning non-alcoholic sales mm-hmm. and wet being you would allow permit the sale and distribution of alcohol one of the interesting things about the Canada Temperance Act or Scott Act was that it made no provision for age so that um, and it made no provision for age and it didn't say anything about uh, you could literally um, get in your car with an open bottle of alcohol and as long as you weren't drunk you could drink it and drive it as uh justice jim donnelly has said you could literally sit on the courthouse steps with a bottle of alcohol on when the canada temperance act was in force and there is nothing you you weren't breaking any law Hmm. but what it did do is um it prohibited the buying and selling of alcohol you could make it you could drink it you could possess it you just couldn't exchange money for it. And that allowed the big brewing um, interests, in, which were very powerful. The brewing lobby in Canada was very powerful with the Molsons in Montreal, the Labatt's in mm-hmm. Carling and London, Ontario, Hiram Walker's in Windsor, Seagram's in Waterloo. It allowed them to continue to make alcohol. Um, but a lot of it, especially during the uh, Prohibition years between 1914 and 1927, when Ontario repealed Prohibition, it allowed them to make and distribute alcohol, but for foreign export only. And of course, everyone knew that foreign export meant the U.S. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., their Temperance Act, the Volstead Act, was far more airtight than in Canada. In the U.S., you couldn't even make alcohol. Not only that, you couldn't possess it, you couldn't buy it or sell it, and you couldn't make it. Mm-hmm. And so in the U.S., the Volstead Act, which came into effect, I think, in 1917 in the U.S., really closed down the brewing companies. And so they had to rely on good Canadian whiskey and beer uh, to kind of slake their thirst sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it came into effect in 1914 in Heron County. Is that correct? Yeah, that was the second. uh, We experimented with the Scott Act between 1884 and 1888. In 1884, they had a referendum and we overwhelmingly voted to go dry and then they repealed that act in 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 another plebiscite in 1888 and they allowed certain hotels to apply for a liquor license that would allow them to buy and sell alcohol okay and i said it's very complicated and it goes back and forth Mm -hmm. and uh, the debate goes back and forth and who's in and who's out and who's when but in 1914 we again voted for the Scott Act in the spring of 1914, and it came into effect on August 1st, 19, like the weekend before we went to war, just days before Canada declared war. Uh, in, on August 4th, 1914, Huron County went dry, and it would stay dry until 1959 when another referendum 35 years later, Huron and Perth counties were the last holdouts in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, prohibition holdouts in Ontario, and we finally voted to repeal Prohibition in 1959. So what would life have looked like in 1914 when it was dry? Well, if, if I can go back even, mm-hmm. I, I mean, alcoholism or uh, alcohol consumption is not a problem until the middle decades in the 19th century. In fact, if, most of us know here that if you go back to the 1820s when Tiger Dunlop and company landed here, uh, the Tiger was known for his prodigious amounts of alcohol that he consumed and it was something that you bragged about it was considered a working man's uh privilege to be able to enjoy a good drink or two or uh, in tiger dunlop's case he kept uh he kept 12 what he called the 12 apostles each one was a great big quart of uh 
oh. whiskey and one of them he called Judas because it was filled with water, but he prided <laughs> on himself on being able to drink whiskey by the quart. And people thought that that was quite, uh, that was a manly thing to do. If you, mm-hmm. the, the more alcohol that you could consume, the better. We Our first prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, was known for his terrible drinking binges, and it doesn't seem to have hurt him politically. And people just kind of laughed that off, and they thought that that was not a bad thing. Drunkenness before the middle decades in the 19th century wasn't really considered a problem. And that's largely because we were an agrarian society. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a lot of cases, drinking alcohol was safer than drinking the water. So everybody, the entire family, uh, had beer for uh, supper with their dinner. Um, at good, uh, unthinkable today at uh, <laughs> barn raising bees, a good host went around ladling cups of whiskey out to uh, the people that were working on the barn. But then all of a sudden attitudes change and, and, and social changes take place that make it impossible for that type of lifestyle to continue. Um, the advent of mechanization, like factory work, you can't have workers showing up inebriated working mm-hmm. around heavy machinery. That would have been terrible. And the accidents, the industrial and agricultural accidents because of drinking and uh, on the job were uh, terrible. And in that day and age, it was considered if you showed up drunk and uh, mangled your hand in the machinery and you couldn't work again, the family didn't eat. You left the family destitute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that happens in the Victorian age is the rise of women's movements. And the women's uh, movements actually picked up on prohibition. That was their cause. And that was probably in Canada, uh, women's first um, adventure onto the political stage. And it actually allowed them later on during the war to get the right to vote. But they organized during uh, the, um, the debate over prohibition or whether we should temper, they became known as the temperance movement. There have been temperance societies in Huron County as early as 1853 when the Sons of Temperance mm-hmm. started a lodge here. And in fact, the Temperance Lodge is, was over at the old McKay Hall here, and it was there for 75 years. And you get organizations like the Sons of Temperance, the Royal Templars of Temperance. But the most powerful of all was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And the first chapter in Huron started in Goddard's in 1877. And they oh, wow. mobilized, they mobilized women uh, to fight what they call the evils of drink, the demon rum sort of thing. And they mm-hmm. issued pamphlets, uh, organized women's groups. Uh, now, they did a lot of them did it through their churches, their respective churches and their respective organizations. But they became a very, very powerful political lobby in the late 19th century. Even when women couldn't vote federally, uh, no politician would have dared cross swords with the Women's Christian Temperance Union because they were such a powerful influence in English Canada, Ontario in particular. Okay. And they were instrumental. When we had the debate in 1914, it was the women's groups that really strong-armed and pressured their husbands to vote for temperance. And their arguments were sound. Like, I mean, as much as Mm -hmm. we think those Victorian ladies rolled fuddy-duddies, they weren't. Their grievances were real because drinking had become a problem. And when uh, men started working on the fact, when their husbands started working on the factory floor and they got paid in cash at the end of the week, oftentimes a lot of them would stop at the local pub, bar, Mm -hmm. saloon and drink away the paycheck. And we also know that um, domestic violence um, starts to become a problem and women's Mm -hmm. groups try to correct that. And they notice that for a lot of them, the uh, source of poverty, um, disease, destitution, mm-hmm. mental illness. For a lot of them, it was 
drink. It was the demon rum. So they had a lot of good reasons to uh, fight for a dry Canada. Mm-hmm. In fact, just a little bit of trivia here. Canada Dry, 1907. Uh, It was called Canada Dry because it was supposed to be a substitute for champagne. It was, in fact, I think it was at one time called the champagne of ginger ales. Oh, wow. So that's why we we still have Dry Canada or Canada Dry uh, Soda Pop. I love champagne, but I wouldn't substituted for well the bubbly feel and the bubbly (laughs) taste in uh, the Canada Dry the ginger ale was supposed to be a Mm -hmm. good or ginger beer you probably heard it It was supposed Mm -hmm. to be a substitute okay for actual beer okay Hmm. wow um in a column you wrote that appeared in the focus on May 20th of this year you mentioned that there were some exceptions to the rule so air bases there were a few of those in Heron County during second world war they were exempt they were able to serve alcohol. Why was this and were there any other spaces within Heron County that were allowed to serve? Well, allowed to serve is the key word. Most mm-hmm. places, a lot of places served alcohol, like almost every hotel mm-hmm. in the back room served alcohol to known and preferred mm-hmm. clients. Uh, but as pro, after, as I said, in 1927, uh, Ontario repeals their Temperance Act, but it still left the Temperance Act in Huron County because they'd already voted for it. And so Ontario was kind of like a patchwork quilt mm-hmm. right up until the 1970s. It was a patchwork quilt of dry and wet areas. During the war, uh, a lot of the airmen that came here, most of them were from the UK, Great Britain, and they didn't know what this prohibition thing was all about because they never had prohibition in the United Kingdom or other Commonwealth countries. That was a uniquely Canadian uh-huh. thing. And since the uh, air bases, well, the, uh, some of them were even administered by the RAF, like the one at Port mm-hmm. Albert and Clinton initially was an RAF base. They didn't have prohibition. And even when they became RCF bases, the RCF bases were administered by the federal or what we called the Dominion government then. Mm-hmm. And the Dominion government didn't have prohibition. So since it was leased to the, the, the properties were owned or governed by the federal government, uh. they could serve alcohol, which... For a brief period in the war, local tavern keepers here were able to successfully argue that it was an unfair advantage for the messes on the air bases to serve alcohol, and they couldn't. So for a brief time during the Second, and only for the Second World War, for a brief time, they allowed certain licensed establishments to sell alcohol under very, very strict conditions. So given that it was um, within the Air Force base, so therefore exempt from local laws, were those bars then privately owned or were they just a part of the RAF? Well, the messes, even now in mm-hmm. Canada, the messes are run by the government, mm-hmm. by the RCAF or the okay. RAF or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they were actually there. They operated their own canteens, they were called, okay. messes. Now, they might yeah. have hired private individuals to come and manage them, mm-hmm. but they are under the ownership of okay. the military. Okay. Wow. And um, what about speakeasies? Were there any within the county? Uh, the short answer is yes. It's kind of hard to nail them down because not a lot of tavern keepers came forward and wanted yeah. to brag about that they had a speakeasy. But I suspect because we know by the number of liquor violations that tavern keepers mm-hmm. uh, had to pay, that there were quite a few places that if you really wanted a drink and you wanted a drink in a hotel or tavern, you knew where to go and you knew who to ask and how to ask. So I suspect that's very true. Now, and in fact, 
as I said, law enforcement was kind of lax. As long as you kept control and it wasn't kind of like things getting out of hand, there wasn't a lot of drunken fighting and brawling, mm-hmm. and you weren't serving to mind. That was huge because remember, even when they repealed prohibition, the drinking age is 21. Okay. And, and that was one of the uh, anomalies that people on the messes found. You could be an airman at 18 or 19. And if, I mean, even people that came back from overseas after the war, they couldn't get a drink in the Legion because they, even though they'd fought in the war, they were still 20 when mm-hmm. they came home and couldn't buy a drink yeah. in the Legion. But I know of one story about a man that lived across from me who's since deceased, uh, Bud Sheardown. He said he was in his uniform and he was only 19. He signed up when he was 19. He went and drank at an old hotel here called the Royal. The liquor inspector came in on a surprise inspection and he said, go put your uniform on and then you can come back and have a drink. Oh, so like, wow. I mean, so like, I mean, there was some flexibility mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And we even know that in a lot of cases, uh, the bar owners, the tavern keepers, if they did get cited, the fines were, didn't put them out of business. Like $50 fine okay. seems to be pretty standard. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like a witch hunt for people who are running the bars. As long as you kind of kept it on the low key and there, nobody was getting out of hand and they weren't getting complaints. Mm-hmm. They kind of tended to leave you, not always, because we get sometimes the legal system decides that they're going to yes. crack down. And But by and large, they're allowed to govern fairly, or, or they were allowed to operate as long as it wasn't mm-hmm. blatant and yeah. open and everything else. So when it became blatant and open, I just remember um, I took my nephews to the um, jail when they were doing the former inmates dressed up and they would tell their stories. And one of the inmates was in prison for public drunkenness. So is that something, what year did that start when people would be in prison? For oh, that? That, well, once again, in, in <laughs> starting in the mid 19th century, public mm-hmm. intoxication was always, and, and in fact, in the Victorian, once again, you see the Victorians had a different age, uh, or just before the Victorian age, somebody that couldn't handle their alcohol mm-hmm. and was like blind drunk or whatever in the streets or something, uh, throw them in the lockup. And how long would they stay there for? Just until oh, they sobered up? Or yeah, a lot months? of times, well, we even call it today the drunk tank. A lot yeah. of times, the Saturday night guys, they'd throw in overnight and sometimes they don't even get charged, but they, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and they release them the next morning. Sometimes it was for their own safety because in the middle of winter, yes, you've got somebody passed out drunk on a road. Mm-hmm. Uh, the local consul might haul them into a wagon and throw them into the drunk tank for a day or two. Mm-hmm. As, but as long as you weren't disorderly, that was another one, drunk and disorderly. That was kind of a little bit more because that usually meant brawling and scrapping and mm-hmm. fighting. Mm-hmm. But by and large, you didn't do much jail time. You might have had to spend a weekend in jail before the Justice of the Peace levied a fine or something like that. Yeah. But they were mostly weekender type guys. Okay. And also bootleggers, because I've heard tales about William Crow Morgan supplying the nearby Sunset Hotel in Godridge from his little cottage on Essex Street. So the cottage is still there overlooking Lake Huron, but Sunset Hotel is not. Do you have any insight on this local story? Uh, yeah. Now, he... <laughs> He didn't uh, supply directly. There is there is a Sunset Hotel, mm-hmm. uh, which was a very famous resort in its day, glamorous resort yeah. in its day. And right nearby was the pavilion, the dance pavilions. Now he couldn't, now the Sunset was dry and prided itself on being dry, but somebody would kind of clear their throat and say, well, but if you wanted a beer, if you wanted a drink, Crow Morgan is like just up, up the road here, uh, up the street, and you can go and knock on his door and see what you can do. And that was the same thing at the pavilion. And I understand at the pavilion, uh, after a dance, because you couldn't, mm-hmm. it was dry, 
uh, you, people would go up to Crow Morgan and uh, a bottle of beer was 50, in the 50s, a bottle of beer was 50 cents or three for a dollar. Mm-hmm. You could take it back in the parking lot. And remember, that's not illegal. What was illegal was when Crow started taking money for it. Mm-hmm. But just having a bottle of beer in the parking lot or even in your car wasn't illegal under the Canada Temperance Act in the 1950s. So you could sit out there and drink it, but you couldn't, you, you just couldn't exchange money, money for, for it. it. And okay. as I said, it wouldn't be unusual for people on the way home to pick up a couple beers and drive home as long as you weren't drunk. And the, 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 the test for drunkenness while you were driving was extraordinarily high. Like, I mean, it, uh, the number of what we call DUIs today mm-hmm. would have been, you would have had to be really, really inebriated to get, to be charged with a DUI is usually accident, but a lot of, there are a lot of terrible, terrible accidents. Mm-hmm. Right up until the 70s in here in county. So let me get this clear. So in 1914, the town, ta- like the county, was completely dry. You couldn't even make your own alcohol. Oh no, you home. can make your own. You alcohol. could make it at home. You just couldn't buy it. During you these couldn't years. buy it or sell. You could. Okay. You could. Drink. I mean, the the, the government was. Uh, they were practical enough to know, mm-hmm. pragmatic enough to know that you can't really stop people from mm-hmm. drinking, and if people were making alcohol on their own still. We don't want to stop. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we can't stop that. But during the war, the uh, um, but during the war, or after prohibition, you could make it, you could drink it, you could possess it. You just couldn't buy it and sell it. And they, and the idea was to crack down where most of the drinking mm-hmm. took place was in the public houses and the taverns and the hotels, and that's what they wanted to crack down on. And in fact, a lot of the women used to complain in the WCTU that uh, men would. Um, they say would prefer to stay at the bar all night and drink mm-hmm. and go home. Yeah. And that, w- that was for them a real problem. They didn't try to regulate uh, drinking habits in the house, although they would have liked to have, but they just didn't have, I mean, we just didn't have law mm-hmm. enforcement enough to be able to do that, especially here where most of our law enforcement were part-time constables. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. so they were kind of pragmatic. Yeah. Okay. But it did put a crimp yeah, for sure. in the alcohol trade in, Mm-hmm. in Huron County. <laughs> well, you mentioned to me once um, when we were speaking on the phone earlier about the largest beer bust in Goderidge in the 1930s. Yeah, well, what yeah, 1930, that? the oh, largest that. beer bust on the Great Lakes originated in Goderidge. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, in uh, uh, May 1930, uh, tug, out of uh, an 86-foot tug, it was, well, it was in Huron County, it was called the Amherstburg 18, but it turned out it was a famous rum runner uh, from Windsor called Geronimo. And actually the Geronimo had been captured by U.S. Um, agents and mysteriously it became unmoored from the American side and drifted across the river, the, the Detroit River, to mm-hmm. its owner in, wow. on the Canadian side. It mysteriously did that and of course American law enforcement couldn't get at it. It was in Canadian waters. Mm-hmm. And then it disappeared, but it shows up in Goderidge under the guise of the Amherstburg 18. And on, uh, in May 1930, and once again, this is illegal, on the, this is pardon me, legal on the Canadian side. Two treasury agents, uh, or revenue agents, were on the lake bank, presumably with the Canadian government's knowledge, mm-hmm. were on the lake bank. They watched uh, uh, 4,000 cases of what would become beer and a couple hundred cases of uh, whiskey, probably Seagram's, get loaded onto the uh, AH-18, the Amherstburg 18. And then six men got on, and they, once again, that's legal, right? What they're doing, they're not exchanging money for it. They loaded up 
4,000 cases of beer, a couple hundred cases of whiskey, and they sailed up into Lake Michigan. As soon as they hit American waters, because the Americans were tracking their movements, as soon as they hit American waters, they were pulled over, arrested, charged uh, with, you know, mm-hmm. violations of the Volstead Act, the Prohibition Act in the States. Very serious charges running alcohol or liquor into the U.S. Oh, okay. They towed them into, and, and uh, they, they towed the AH-18 into Milwaukee Harbor where they were formally charged the six men were formally charged and released on, I think it was $4,500 bail, which in 1930 was a substantial mm-hmm. amount. Of, who put that bail up money? That Who put that bail money up is kind of a mystery, but um, they did, and they were all released on bail, and uh, they seemed that the crew seemed to have a deplorable lack of curiosity and interpersonal skills because when they were asked, well, who's the captain? Nobody knew. <laughs> or who's the chief engineer? Nobody knew. Well, where are they? And they said just before they were um, pulled over that they had gone away in a boat to go and pick up a part. And when they at the time that they were uh, arrested, so they no, all six of them claimed they didn't know who the captain was, who the chief engineer mm-hmm. was. They said, you know, so oh, we just thought we were carrying party favors. So they were played really dumb and naive, and nobody yeah. really bought that. And at the trial, which only lasted. Uh, oh, less in the morning at the trial uh, with the mountains of evidence, the mountains of beer cases and the whiskey cases. It took the jury less than an hour to declare them all not guilty. And that was a source of real frustration for law enforcement because they never launched another liquor raid like that again. But then Milwaukee was probably, you know, the home of the brewers. Mm-hmm. And, that, that, and, and before Prohibition, it had all these yeah. beer brewing companies uh, was probably the wrong place to uh, charge and try beer smugglers. <laughs> yeah. So, uh-huh. uh, um, in the mid '50s, it seems like there was more chatter around prohibition, um, based on news articles that appear and that you reference in the different articles you've written. Um, it was a topic for discussion at local council meetings. The number of raids you reference in the article as well seemed to have increased. Huron County and nearby Perth were two of the last counties in Canada to abolish prohibition. So who was in support of the act and what was the rationale behind it? After the war, uh, a lot of the counties began repealing prohibition. Mm -hmm. uh, the, The Canada Temperance Act, which was a federal statute. So they began repealing prohibition. So a lot of people began to think, although there were a lot of people that still didn't want alcohol sales, they still thought that alcohol sales were bad and access to alcohol. Now they tended to be an older demographic because the women's, they're still around. Uh, temperance unions are still around. Temperance bodies are still around. They're just not as powerful because they're just belong mm-hmm. to a different generation. And they were still concerned because they remember when it was a terrible, terrible problem. And um, they still remember the, uh, the early days. And so they continued to fight it. The established churches, mm-hmm. This churches in the area, still very powerful in the post-war era, uh, were against, particularly the Protestant churches, were against prohibition, or, or for prohibition, for, prohibition. for temperance, okay. pardon me, mm-hmm. for temperance. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people were prepared to pay lip service, but it's getting harder and harder to justify an act that if you go across the county line in Lambton County, it's legal to buy alcohol. Mm-hmm. But a mile north, when you hit Huron County, that's an illegal act. That's a criminal act. And a lot of people began to see that as unfair. The other thing that happens is this thing called the Liquor Control Act that the province enacts comes out. And uh, 
the Liquor Control Act basically said, you know what, we're going to allow the buying and selling of alcohol, but it's, we're going to, the government is going to strictly regulate it. And funny enough, even though we kind of consider today that prohibition was a failure because people continued to drink, mm -hmm. but in a lot of ways it succeeded in what its original purpose was. Uh, now, now my, my information is American, not Canadian, mm -hmm. but we know during prohibition in the States that people moderated their alcohol by, some people say by up to 80%. Wow. Uh, Alcohol-related diseases dropped dramatically in the 1920s, and cases of domestic abuse and violence, they dropped dramatically in the 1920s. When Canada repeals prohibition, the government uh, strictly regulates it in government-controlled beer stores, like it used to be called mm -hmm. the Brewers Retail, we now call the Beer Store, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, they strictly control the sale, and they test for the purity of alcohol and and so you're not buying bathtub gin or like yeah. I mean, people going <laughs> blind drunk from drinking homemade uh, whiskey made from a still. So the government under the Liquor Control Act says we're going to permit the sale of alcohol, but under really stringent conditions. In fact, I don't know if you remember, but I remember the first uh, for the first couple of years that I went into a beer store, you couldn't or a liquor store, you couldn't handle the alcohol. You had to fill out a card. It was like going in and you had to fill a little card and you had to slip it across the counter to a guy behind uh, a worker who would go and get your bottle, wrap it up in brown paper, plain brown paper, no advertising for that you had liquor there and you kind of kind of shuffled out like you felt like you were doing something wrong. <laughs> uh, so you weren't allowed to touch the alcohol until you bought it. Mm -hmm. You can only say, this is what I want. I want to buy and put it on a little piece of paper. But the government strictly controlled alcohol sale and that became very appealing for a lot of people that said well you know what it's okay to take a drink now and again but i don't want to see like the drinking the the the, the, the drunken behavior the silliness yeah. that we used to see before and this was kind of conceived as a middle of the road mm -hmm. the lca the liquor control act was kind of seen as a middle uh, of the road compromise that average ontarians could have could mm -hmm. accept wow. now that, that doesn't mean like because when we had that referendum in 1959 there were church and school groups that still opposed the sale of alcohol. The Women's Christian Temperance still, right up in the 1960s, still very active. Let's talk about the um, referendum in 1959. What were the main arguments for and against lifting the rules? Was the county divided when they joined others in becoming a so-called wet county? Um, did some of the communities, like back then it was still like the townships and towns and stuff like that. Um, did they remain dry? And if so, which ones? Uh, well, the towns tended to vote to go wet. And a lot of the townships, I can't remember individual, a lot of the townships tended to go uh, r remain dry or vote to remain dry. And a lot of it because they were rural townships mm -hmm. and probably, I don't want to say more conservative, but they probably were more conservative when it came to drink mm -hmm. and their attitudes towards drink. And the same, the same arguments that were in place in 1914 were in place in 1959. Some people say, okay, we have a sensible way to control alcohol through the Liquor Control Act. We'll only let the government sell alcohol in government-controlled stores. Unlike in the States when they repealed the <laughs> Volstead Act, you, uh, you, for a while you can go through a drive-in in the States and pick up a six-pack and mm -hmm. not that, until not that long ago. And the government said, we're going to regulate alcohol and make sure we keep it out of the hands of minors and we're mm -hmm. going to have strict drinking and driving regulated. And, and so they did. And, and, and a lot of people were prepared by that point to tolerate that. And the other thing we had, which was unique then in the 1950s to Huron County, were these things called bottle clubs. 
Okay, and the oh. bottle clubs were like the old-fashioned speakeasies. And they emerged in Huron because they said, well, you know, how do we get around? How do we get around the Canada Temperance Act? Well, the Canada Temperance Act, uh, like I said, only forbid the sale of alcohol, the distribution and sale of alcohol. But what if you belong to a club? Okay, mm -hmm. and what if you belong to a club where you paid a membership fee? And that membership fee included somebody making a run, like a Crow Morgan type guy would make a run to Lambton County mm -hmm. or London, pick up beer, buy it legally from a government run store. And you came back to the club and you would go in and you'd say, okay, I want, I, I want my bottle of uh, Labatt, say, or whatever, <laughs> whatever your tipple was. And uh, you weren't buying you were paying a membership fee. You weren't buying directly yeah. alcohol. Now, there's no doubt that violated the spirit of the law, but it did violate the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. And that's what, in the 1950s, I think it was called the Voice of Temperance. The Temperance Union yeah. still had a column, and they talked about these infamous here in county bottle clubs where people would pay their membership fee and go for a drink and a smoke with their friends sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And... They tried to crack down. You get waves of times where they try to crack down on the bottle clubs, and it tended to be after something terrible happened. Like if there was a, I think mm -hmm. the one car accident, there was three kids killed, mm -hmm. and uh, they got their alcohol from a bottle club. So after that, there was a crackdown on the bottle clubs. Mm -hmm. But once again, the bottle clubs existed quite openly in Bayfield, St. Joseph's. There's well, there's one just around the corner from us here at what used to be the. Chief of Weed or here in Chief Hotel. And uh, everybody knew that if you wanted to get a drink, you can go to the bottle club. In fact, another individual, he, um, a gentleman that um, came to the area in the 1950s, he was a young engineer, he came to the area in the 1950s, he was staying at the Bedford Hotel, went down, wanted to have a bottle of beer. They said, well, you, you can't. They said, yeah, what are you talking about? Like, I mean, don't, yeah. And, and they said, but if you want a bottle of beer there, you might go to the here in Chief. So he knocked on the door of the hearing chief and he said, I, I, I came for a beer. And the guy said, who, like, I mean, who sent you here? And they were kind of concerned. He said, uh, are you a member? And he said, a member of what? He said, well, if you're not a member, are you, you're, that guy's a friend of yours, right? And that guy's a friend <laughs> of yours. So you know that guy. And that's how he got a bottle of beer. But you weren't paying money directly for the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And the bottle clubs of here and were kind of in, because everybody knows where they were and they operated quite openly. And once again, if everyone behaved, Mm -hmm. The law enforcement kind of, and, and in yeah. fact, the voice of temperance is constantly trying to prod law enforcement to mm -hmm. kind of go after these things, go after these little establishments. And most of the time, um, they were allowed to exist. And as I said, they even had names like the Maitland Club. The Where's Bayfield, the Maitland Club? I think the Maitland Club was in Hensel. There was one on the main street of Hensel. There was one in Bayfield. I think it was just called the Bayfield Club. Mm -hmm. And everybody- Is it still there? I, I I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the exact Because the Huron really, Chiefs is. Yeah, the Huron Chiefs, Chiefs is still there. It's an apartment block now. It's an apartment block just mm -hmm. around the corner from us mm -hmm. here. And um, so I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know exactly the mm -hmm. buildings that they were yeah. in Bayfield. The, the, the one that was in Bayfield must have been on the highway because another terrible uh, incident happened where somebody robbed the, May, uh, the Bayfield Club, went down to St. Joseph, and they were shot and killed in uh, trying to rob the one at St. Joseph. The oh, wow. uh, owner of it uh, was awakened at about four or five in the morning, saw somebody crashing through his window and shot it and killed this individual. And- um, Oh, wow. 
Okay. And, well, yeah, like I said, there is a dark side of the bottle clubs because mm-hmm. they kind of knew it was a semi-legal activity that you were dependent on the, uh, basically the law enforcement turning a blind eye and your mm-hmm. neighbors. If they got complaints, then you got shut down. Mm-hmm. So they were in their best interest for everybody to behave. But, you know, as you know, yeah. alcohol-influenced people don't always behave the way mm-hmm. they should. <laughs> and so I'm just wondering, you've talked about the Voice of Temperance and you're a local columnist. Um, the Voice of Temperance column appeared in local newspapers and they talked about where the illegal operations were and bottle clubs and whatnot. So I'm just wondering, do you think that's risky behavior or was it for the good of the community? Well, I'm sure they thought it was for the good of the community. I know from my perspective as a historian, <laughs> looking at the old newspapers, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful that the voice of uh, temperance outed all these <laughs> bottle clubs because you realize what a huge... At one time, I think they thought there was 55 bottle clubs operating in Huron County. Oh, wow. Uh, some extraordinary number of bottle clubs operating in Huron County. And if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't know that. Mm-hmm. You know? How much would a membership in a bottle club cost? A good question. I, I, I wish I knew. That's the one bit of information mm-hmm. that they kind of, and I suspect it, it kind of depended on uh, your level of membership, probably depended mm-hmm. on your, your level. Here's the other interesting thing about the bottle clubs. When they seized bottle club liquor, mm-hmm. uh, when they went to trial, if you were a bottle club member, you were allowed to come and claim your beer or alcohol okay. because it was your property. Mm-hmm. So you were, and, and so uh, at the Goddard Courthouse after a bottle club seizure, oftentimes you'd get the owners of the property wanting their property back and they were entitled to it. Hmm. So that kind of tells you how we're, we're law enforcement really thought about. Yeah. Like kind of cracking down on, and, and it must have been discouraging for them and a lot of people because as I said, it was legal in every other county mm-hmm. around us except Perth. And, but it's a criminal act here. And that was kind of for a lot of people, they thought, you know what? The LCA cracked down on drinking and driving. You can't have an open bottle of liquor mm-hmm. in your car and drive like you could under the CTA. You can't sit on the courthouse steps and have a bottle of whiskey and nobody do anything. You have to have a drinking age. You have to, you know, you, mm-hmm. you have to be 21 then yeah. to be able to buy alcohol. And even then in 1959, that was just to allow government run sales of alcohol. You had to have another referendum if you wanted to grant a license to a tavern or a hotel. And so in, say, Godridge, you had to have another, we had another referendum. The first hotel to be granted a liquor license, a liquor permit in Huron County was the Royal Hotel, but unfortunately it burned down. But the first one that actually operated was the Bedford Hotel here with a liquor license. And that was until the mid 60s. that you can legally buy a drink in a hotel or a bar or a tavern. Seems unimaginable now that you would go to a hotel and not be able to buy a drink in the yeah, hotel and, and, bar. And, and it was something that the hotel, well, you, you could, but it was illegal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it's something that the hotel keepers were kind of mm-hmm. really pushing to have happen. But as late as 1978, I believe, when we had the plowing match in Turnberry County, uh, the, the Wingham plowing match, yeah. uh, they voted to keep Turnberry dry and not allow liquor sales at the plowing match in oh, 1978 wow. that's 1978 almost 20 years after Huron county voted to repeal the uh uh canada temperance act and now they did a lot they, they did find a loophole uh, f- uh and i can't remember exactly what it was they did end up allowing a beer garden at the wingham ipm but 
it was against the wishes of uh, the people of Turnberry. And so was Turnberry dry at that time or just yeah, for were, that they, event? Well, they had the vote. They had a referendum or a plebiscite. I suspect, I, I mean, there, there probably wouldn't be any place that you could, like they wouldn't have a liquor store mm -hmm. or, or a hotel in Turnberry. Yeah. So it probably wasn't an issue, but they did mm -hmm. have a vote on whether they wanted to have wow. beer sales, alcohol sales at the plying match and Turnberry Township turned it down. Hmm. So, and that, like I said, that's not ancient history. No, absolutely. Before my time, though. But, <laughs> well, yeah, not mine. <laughs> no, but I do remember my uncle, um, who's obviously from Goderidge as well, talking about he remembers the dry days of Huron County. So this was very interesting. Thank you oh, uh, my pleasure. so much for joining me. Is there anything, any last notes about prohibitioning in Huron County? No, other than, um, no, it, it's just an interesting legacy of the past mm -hmm. that kind of gives our history a little bit more color. And the fact that we uh, had prohibition for so long, which would seem at odds with the behavior of a lot of people in Huron County today. But well, particularly some of the stories that I'm reading about the hotels that operated in the area in the 60s and 70s, um, it's kind of interesting that we went from completely dry to some quite storied nights at the inns oh yeah and, and actually that's an in the whole uh, hotels are some of the most interesting places mm -hmm. in any town to study because they were more than just places to sleep like at one time hotels were like when they had the traveling salesmen they were like the traveling bazaars they had uh medical people dental people everything yeah. went on in a hotel it was a real Hub of activity and all the little hotel, and they all have such fascinating histories mm -hmm. here. And prohibition is just one of those stories. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Oh, you're very it was welcome. such a pleasure. If you're keen to explore the food scene in Huron County, you'll want to know about Tasting Huron County curated food experiences delivered. We do breakfast and picnic deliveries and like to think of these as a delivery from a Huron County-wide farmer's market. All deliveries are abundant and feature products produced right here in the county. But if a walking tour is more your jam, Tasting Huron County's Goddard's Tasting Trail takes visitors on a half-day guided tour of the food scene while mixing in architecture and history. To find out more, visit tastinghuroncounty.ca, that's all one word, for more details. I'd like to thank the Huron Heritage Fund for their support of this podcast. If you're in Huron County, one of my favorite places to wander is the Huron County Museum and the nearby Huron Historic Jail particularly during special events. And the museum is free for Huron County Library card holders. I'd like to give a shout out to Community Futures Huron for their support of this podcast. If you're thinking of setting up shop in Huron County, I cannot say enough great things about this team. When I was in the exploration stages of creating a PR agency, event company, tasting Huron County, I wasn't exactly sure what, but I gleaned an incredible amount of information from the resourceful Community Futures team before finally settling down in Huron County once again. I'd also like to thank Clint Mackey, Andrew Bauk, Nick Vinicombe, and Mark Hussey at Faux Pop Media, who produce and generously support postcards from Huron County. Thank you so much for listening. If you're a fan of Postcards from Huron County, I would be so grateful if you would rate or review this podcast on your favorite channel or share on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at Postcards from Huron County so I can be sure to thank you for helping share my love of Huron County.